workshop will focus on eligibility requirements to meet legally mandated criteria to convert condos. Attendees will be given specific insights on navigating the process from filing an initial application to receiving the final certificate of completion. I'm the mo moderator. My name is uh, Ed Sweeney. I'm a senior building inspector with DBI. Uh, we're joined today with uh, John Cuneo from DBI. He does the physical inspections. Um, we have uh, Mr. T Timothy Lee from the Rent Board. He's the Ellis coordinator. And we have uh, Ms. Cheryl Herre uh, Herrera from the uh, Department of Public Works. So uh, before we start, we'd like to have an um, audience survey, find out who's here. Who's here from the, uh, the real estate industry? Large showing. Contractors? Again, only SF Garage. Uh, who are the, the homeowners? Mostly homeowners. And design professionals? Okay, so we have mostly homeowners. That's good. Has everyone had a chance to pick up the guided materials from the rear of the table? If, if you have not, please take a moment to get the handouts so you may follow the presentation. The handouts will also provide some details specific on issues which may not be presented because there are complexities. Hopefully most or all of your concerns will be addressed during the presentation. There's uh, two pages out there. So as I mentioned before, we have the good fortune to have with us Ms. Cheryl Herrera, Survey Associate with the Department of Public Works, Bureau of Street Use and Mapping. Ms. Herrera will discuss issues which relate to her department's involvement with condominium conversions. We also, we are grateful to have Mr. Timothy Lee, Rent Board, Ellis Coordinator for the San Francisco Rent Stabilization Board. Mr. Lee will give us the benefit of his experience and knowledge relating to the Ellis Rent Board issues during the question and answer portion of this morning's presentation. Our presentation will walk you through the procedures which govern condo conversions in San Francisco. Set aside for now what you have may, may have been told by friends, family, or possibly some well-meaning city employee about condo conversions. Please hold your questions until all presentations are complete, at which time the mic located in the center aisle will be available for your use. If we do not get to your questions during the time allowed, we will adjourn to the hall outside. Along with additional city staff, we will attempt to answer all of your questions. And now, to begin, may I introduce from DPW Condo Conversions, Ms. Cheryl Herrera. Reminder, please hold all questions until the presentations are completed. Good morning. Yes, my name is Cheryl Herrera. I've been working with Department of Public Works for about nine years. I have a lot of material to cover, so and it's very technical, so I, I'm just going to dive right in. Most of the information covered today can be found on the Department of Public Works website. The website is sfdpw.org. If you don't have access to the Internet or for some reason you can't access it, you can contact our office, 554-5347. Basically, there are two groups of buildings that can convert to condominiums in San Francisco. You have what we call the two-unit lottery bypass and two to six residential units via the condominium lottery. In San Francisco, buildings with seven or more units may not be converted to condominiums. First off, you have to determine if you qualify. Do you meet the owner occupancy requirements? <clears throat> Any evictions in your building might determine when or if you'll be able to convert your buildings to condominiums. 
For a two-unit lottery bypass, each unit must be owner-occupied by separate owners of record for one year at the time of application. The key is to be an owner for a year and an occupant for a year. Each qualifying owner of record must be listed in the preliminary title report and have a minimum of 25% interest in the building. So as you begin to approach your one year of owner occupancy or um, if you've lived in your building for many years, once you decide you're ready to convert, you're going to go to Department of Building Inspection and apply for your physical inspection report. You're also going to apply for something called the 3R report. When you apply for your physical inspection, you're going to get a receipt. Keep a copy of that. You'll need to submit it with your condominium conversion application. And John's going to talk about both of those in a bit here. Uh, some general condominium lottery information. As of this morning, the dates for condominium lottery for 2008 have not been finalized. Generally, lottery ticket sales begin right around Thanksgiving and run through the end of January. You can buy your tickets at 875 Stevenson, room 410, costs $150. For five and six unit buildings, you need three units owner occupied by separate owners of record for three years at the close of condominium lottery ticket sales. And basically that's counted backwards from the day ticket sales close back three years. Again, remember buildings with seven or more residential units cannot be converted in San Francisco. Generally, it takes about seven days for Department of Public Works to uh, have the certified winners list after lottery drawing day and notify all of the winners they're eligible to submit their application. All lottery participants should receive something in, mail, in the mail. If you haven't heard from our office by the end of February, I would certainly give a call. Uh, again, that number is 554-5827. So as soon as you've been notified that you've been selected in the lottery, I would go see John here and apply for your physical inspection report at Department of Building Inspection. Again, hold on to your receipt. You're going to need that. Okay, so this part of the process is the same whether it's a lottery bypass or um, a lottery conversion. <clears throat> Begin compiling your application, collect all of the documents. When you go to our website, sfdpw.org, you can click on the link called Forms. In there, you'll find the application for residential condominium conversion. Go ahead and, and have a close look at that. Begin shopping for your licensed land surveyor or civil engineer licensed before 1982. You'll have to have a map prepared. When you read the application, pay special attention to the section titled Finalizing Your Application. Department of Public Works cannot collate your application. We cannot make copies. All of that has to be done at the time of submittal. While it's not required, I would say a majority of the applicants choose to have a professional compile and submit their application on their behalf. So once you've read the application, you have a complete application, you'll go ahead and submit it to our office, 875 Stevenson, room 410. As soon as you have your physical inspection report from DBI, begin your code compliance work right away. Once all this work is complete, you'll get a document called the CFC, or Certificate of Final Completion. And you will need that as a part of your condominium conversion application. 
You're going to begin working with your attorney to prepare the legal documents, something called the Covenants, Conditions, and Restrictions, also known as the CCNRs. This is the document that records after your map, the final document to record in a conversion. So Department of Public Works will refer your application to, to city planning, human rights, rent board, and street use permits. Once all agencies have provided written approval to our office, we will issue the tentative map decision or the tentative map approval. At that time, we'll request a copy of the CFC. You may not have it quite yet. You'll still be working on those, the code compliance issues, but I imagine you should, you should complete that and get that CFC shortly. The tentative map decision is sent to your map preparer. So when Department of Public Works is ready to record your map, we'll request the final mylars. That'll, that's the document that's signed by all of the owners of record. You'll submit them to our office along with the recording fee and the tax certificate. Only after we have all of the items will we review the mylars, tax certificate, CFCO, um, mylars, recording fee. When the review is complete, the whole package will be passed to the county surveyor for recordation. The recorder's office has 10 days to record a map. Once the map's recorded, you'll record your CC&Rs. And you can work either with your title company or your attorney uh, to sort of monitor when, when that map has recorded. And that's pretty much the process for a residential conversion. I do want to ask if there's anybody here for a commercial conversion, just straight commercial, no residential units. No, okay. Um, again, all of the applications are on our website, sfdpw.org, and they're in the link called Forms. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, so to continue with this presentation, John Cuneo will take you through the next process. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, hi, my name is John Cuneo. I'm a building inspector in the code enforcement section of DVI, which is responsible for the physical inspection portion of the condominium conversion process. When you start with us, you'll submit the application and you'll go to 1650 Mission Street, room 312C, or you can phone and we'll mail it to you, or we can email it to you. Once you receive it, you'll want to make sure on the top line you put all addresses associated with the property on that line. Then the uh, your name, and then on the primary use of the property, for two units, you'd check that box. For three units, you'd pick the box below that, and you'd list the units to the right, how many units are there. For mixed use, say you have a uh, flower shop or a uh, bike shop on the ground floor, two residential above that, you'd list that here under mixed use. You'd list the square footage of the commercial space right there. Uh, then if there's more than one structure, on the lot, you'd list that here, and then the rest is all your comp contact information. Currently, uh, from the time that you would file, we are uh, less than three months to the inspection. This time last year, it would have been about nine months. This is the fee breakdown for residential units. On the day of the inspection, there will be three building inspectors there. Well, one building inspector, one plumbing inspector, and uh, one electrical inspector. And when we say uh, we can complete the inspection in as little as 30 minutes for an unobstructed building that's well maintained, 
we're expecting if there's an attic that you provide us with a ladder so we can peek in the attic. If there's a basement and there's padlocks on storage rooms that you're going to give us access to those storage rooms, that we don't come out there and we come to a room where the boxes are piled from one end of the room out into the hallway, it makes us suspicious. So we want to have access to the entire building when we come out there. Uh, after the inspection, we will research the property, the permit history, and we'll start to, to prepare the report of physical inspection. And this will take approximately one month. If your physical inspection report will itemize the violations found, if any, and believe it or not, there are some that have no violations. You're going to want to discuss the report with all the owners. This is very important because you guys all want to get through this together, and sometimes one person would just the most minor violation, doesn't want to cooperate with the rest. Everything on the report is going to have to be dealt with for you to get to the, to the final CC, the CFC. So you're going to have to get together and discuss this. Then you or your contractor agent will go to 1660 Mission Street and apply for a permit. You must bring your written report with you. And this is what you're going to obtain when you go to 1660 Mission. You're going to get this pink application. And on the first line, once again, we want to put all addresses associated with the property, not just yours. And then on line 16, it's really important to list comply with the physical inspection report and the 3R number. Don't list individual violations. You're going to list your 3R number. You'll receive that. This here will be your receipt when you file your application. This will be your 3R number. This is also, um, Cheryl's going to want this as part of the package when you're finished with the total inspection process. But this number here, which we refer to as your 3R number, is a unique number to your property, will be referred to over and over by DBI. It's kind of like your driver's license, social security during this process, and it will be unique to your property. Okay, we're back to the pink application. Other information necessary to fill this out, such as um, construction type or occupancy, you may not know. It will be contained on the report. Uh, if you're not a professional, an architect, engineer, or architect, uh, my associate, uh, Inspector Lau, or myself are more than willing to fill these out for you and have them ready for you. You just have to sign your name and the approximate value on the form. We do that as a courtesy in the afternoon. You give us a couple days' notice. Um, for electrical and plumbing permit information, you're going to phone the respective numbers uh, listed below. Okay, once the permits are issued and the violations have been corrected, you're going to call the electrical and plumbing departments and request reinspections so you can uh, demonstrate that you've taken care of those violations. Once, once that's been taken care of, you'll phone the building inspector. The local building inspector for that district will come to your property. And this job card will be issued to you. This is the front of the job card. will be issued to you. Uh, when your permit is uh, issued to you after filling out that pink application that we just viewed. This is the cover of the job card. This is the back of the job card. These are the numbers that you will be using. That's for the, get your building inspection, your electrical, and over there is your plumbing. Those are the important numbers. And this is the inside of the job card, the most important part. And you're going to want to keep this on the job the entire time. And then this is your permanent record that everything's been inspected. You're going to want to get your electrical and plumbing to sign off here before you phone the building. Once they've signed off and they're satisfied with their end of the report, you're going to phone up and have the uh, district building inspector come. They'll sign it on this line right here. And after they sign that, 
they're going to issue this. This is the holy grail, and this is what you're gunning for, and this is the final step with us. And you're going to want to make a copy of this for each one of the owners. I'd suggest put them in your safe deposit box, and then you're going to provide this and that receipt to Cheryl to prove that you've uh, complied with everything with the DBI. And at that end, you're done with us. Okay, thank you. That, um, that finishes our presentation for today, and now we're going to open it up for uh, questions and answers. If we could, could we get everybody that wants to answer a question to the center aisle and use the microphone? We we're recording this, and it helps, makes a better presentation. I am back at the beginning of how do you even qualify? How does your building qualify? I have four units that currently three of them are rented I live and have lived for 15 years in my own. So if I wanted to convert this, say three tenants move out, not Ellis Act, just one at a time they, they leave. And in fact, two tenants turned over this, this last month. And so after I rented it out, I'm thinking, well, maybe I should have tried to convert this thing and sell these building, these units and not have to worry about fixing broken water heaters anymore. So is there a certain amount of parking spaces? Do the the electrical meters all have to be separate. Does the water have to be separate? Could there be a uh, – currently they have separate PG&E, but the water is one, for example. Does that have to – you know, those kinds of details, like how does, how does your building actually qualify? And so what would those violations be that one would have to do before one could become a condo? Okay, and let me just start here because you have a couple of a couple of questions going on there. Some of it's DBI and some of it's condo conversion. In order for your building to qualify to participate in the lottery, you said it's four units. Right. Okay, so as long as you have one unit owner occupied for three years, then you can apply to participate in the condominium lottery. And it's, that's really what it is, is you'll, you'll participate in the lottery, and um, if you're not selected and you choose to come back the next year, you'll participate again until you're selected for conversion. The minimum owner occupancy is one unit, so it sounds like you meet that. Um, Okay, so that's, that's the next step. I, what I usually tell people, on the day you find out that you've been selected to convert, then you're going to go talk to building inspection. And I, do you want to elaborate thank, on thank that? Thank you, Cheryl. Uh, for the questions about the electrical and the water, I would suggest phoning electrical and uh, plumbing. But I'll answer to the best of uh, my ability, but I would still check with them. If you have common areas, they're going to want a separate meter and panel for that area. And for water, as far as I know, there is no requirement for separation. But then again, I would double check with electrical and plumbing on that. That can be covered by your CCNRs. And parking, does each unit have to have I think that's a planning issue. It falls into the general plan. So I think that parking is just whatever it is in a conversion. Check, check with planning. They can't make you have what you don't have. If your building was built without parking, there's no requirement to add parking. Say that there's 10 years of, of applications on file, though. 
I'm sorry, can you come on? <laughs> I can't even see yeah, who I'm addressing. Can you please, can you come can you to please the use slide, the microphone? Please? Actually, that was kind of what I was going to ask about um, the lottery, how it works. There's only 50 permits, uh, if you could clarify that for me, a year. Is that c correct? Okay, Department of Public Works, according to the subdivision code, you can find it online if you'd like to look at it. It's at municode.com, and you're going to look for Article 9 of the San Francisco subdivision code. Okay, Article 9 tells us that we are allowed to convert 200 units per year by condominium lottery, and that is units, that's not buildings. So generally that translates into somewhere between 60 to 65 buildings on condominium lottery day, and everybody else is waitlisted or on the standby list. Um, uh, let's see, I guess a little more detail about the condominium lottery. Uh, you have pool A and pool B. In the condominium lottery, Pool B are the folks who are participating for their first, second, and third time. Pool A are the people that are participating for five, and so forth, and so on. Each year, you come back and participate. Your um, you're granted an additional ticket, so you have one ticket for each year of participation. We draw the first 100 units from Pool A, and within Pool A we have sort of pools within pools. They're ranked um, by their senior year of participation. So this year, I don't remember what the highest number is. I'll, I'll just say it's, um, we have some six year participants coming back. I don't remember if that's exactly accurate, but we'll draw the first 100, we'll start drawing in lottery day from that highest most senior pool. As soon as we reach to 100 units, the lottery stops. And then what happens is all lottery participants, Pool A and Pool B, participate together um, in the remaining portion of the lottery for the last 100 units. Does that answer? Uh, the gentleman sat down. I hope that answers your question. Any other questions? Please stand on the center aisle. Form a line, please. Um, my question relates to the first question. Um, I'm assuming that any building that is going to be inspected by the Department of Public uh, Building Inspection to qualify to be a condominium has to conform to the applicable building codes that apply to that specific structure and uh, occupancy. Plus, then does also the housing rules and regs kick in as well? And thirdly, is there a special handout that would address specific issues that buildings that want to be condoed have to conform to prior to inspection or prior to passing an inspection? Your building will be um, inspected. If you, it, for instance, if your building's 1920, it has to conform to what it was in 1920 with, with some life safety upgrades, some some pass-throughs, but basically it's if, if you have a building from 1920 and you've done very little to it, uh, just um, some of the Title 24 stuff, like what, whether, whether stripping the doors and um, uh, some fire-related issues. It's a very low threshold, in, in my opinion, what, what we're looking at in those physical inspections. John could probably talk a little bit more about it. He's the one that's doing them. Yeah, I'll give an example. Uh, a few months ago, 
fellow phoned and said that he had a building that I would be thrilled to inspect. It was on Bay Street. It was an early 50s building, never touched. And the realtors told him this would be a great building. And when I went there, it, it was a very easy report. I remember three violations. He had a hole in the ceiling in the garage. He had built that one room, and I don't recall what the other one was. But because the building had never been altered, and the only few things that we could enforce would have been uh, some Title 24 with weather stripping. He already had it. Smoke alarms. He already had it. Um, very simple. Now, we can come into buildings where people have built out the garage, they've built out the attic, and then with no permits, then it's a total different issue. I'd like to add, when that does does happen, uh, they have to be brought up into compliance, and yes. they will be looked at today under the 2001 California Building Code, and come January, we'll be looking at the 2007 California Building Code. Um, yeah, I, my, my third question still remains, is there a separate uh, category of uh, criteria that have to be met, such as you mentioned common area earlier, that maybe wouldn't be required by the building code or the housing code just to be a condominium, or would it be the same thing as qualifying for an apartment building, or you see what I'm saying? Is there any separate? Everything's based on the California building code today. And the common area, you would decide in your CC and R's, right, Cheryl? What you can do, I, I'm not exactly sure if I'm following the question, but you could look up on the Internet, look up condominiums, look up the definition for condominiums, and you'll see it's very specific, and it tells you what part of the building will be, a con, will be common and what part. Actually, the only part you're ever really going to own is the unit that you occupy. Everything else in the entire building will be common. But if you can look up those definitions, I think that'll help. Hi, I have uh, two questions, but I don't think they're very long. The, the first one is uh, I've been living in San Francisco since 1970, and for 35, 36 years I was a renter. Uh, prior to rent stabilization and the rent stabilization board, it was sort of a polite jungle out there, and the rent stabilization board did a lot, not only to, you know, equalize the rents. I mean, people have pro and con thoughts about it, but for many people it's a very good thing. About 10 years ago, my wife and I uh, bought a condo. So what I'm curious about is just the way the Rent Stabilization Board kind of smooths, not smooths over, but helps to resolve problems between landlords and tenants and landlords and tenants and tenants. I'm wondering, especially in the two-unit condo situation, two-party condo situation, you know, some people say you could ensure life by selecting your parents carefully. Uh, sometimes when there's a get, when there's a one-to-one -one tie, when you have a two-unit condo thing, and I'm thinking about new improvements on the horizon, is there anything either on the books now or that you all might be thinking about with regard to some counseling or decision-making process other than formalized mediation or arbitration in the CCNRs to get over the small but uh, – but you know how things grow. It's like a pebble in your shoe. Sometimes they, they get crazy because the disputes are so intense. Uh, kind of conflict resolution in the C in CCNRs through a review of the um, submitted CCNRs in advance for that kind of thing. And then the second, the second thing is uh, with regard, again, to the CCNRs, especially with the passage of, I think it's called, the, I'm not sure what it is, the Davis-Sterling or the Sterling-Davis Act, there's a lot of... Uh, 
additional regulations that have come down that have modified certain things that you can do in in condos the last one that comes to mind is that apparently one pet reasonable or not too unusual is now permitted regardless of what any CC&Rs may say so I'm wondering is there or are you all thinking about having some sort of notification to condo unit owners about things you know changes in the law that folks might want to look at to see whether their CC&Rs are still in compliance so those are my two questions I can address your first question with regard to the rent board processes the rent board does have a program called an alternative dispute resolution ADR and there's a form that you can see on the rent boards website and that is not limited to disputes regarding the rent ordinance itself it is non-binding totally voluntary by the parties whether it's landlord tenant 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 as long as it's related to some housing type issue it doesn't have to be a rent ordinance based dispute and we have experienced hearing officers that conduct those ADR sessions basically to see if the parties can resolve it on their own as long as is there a tenant in possession it's just two condo owners I doubt whether we've never had the situation arise but I would think there'd have to be some tenant involvement somewhere if it was just two owners having disputes I don't think the rent board would be the place to go there are community boards that might be available for that type of dispute resolution as to the other I don't know anything about the you know the state laws I I always tell everybody at the rent board when they have questions that beyond you know the ordinance itself that if they're really looking for legal advice they should talk to an attorney and the type of questions you're asking sounds like attorney would definitely be warranted yeah as far as Department of Public Works is concerned once the map is recorded our authority pretty much over the map is complete so I think I have to agree that if if there are other issues that it just might require some legal counsel likewise with Department of Building Inspection we consider that a civil matter to be handled between the parties and those probably would have been better if it was handled in the CC and ours would have spelled out you know the responsibility and set-asides of money for future projects next question please with respect to a two-unit conversion how does the city confirm the 25% ownership rule and then second question is related to what you said earlier when repairs have been made perhaps without permits although they appear to have been done to code either when they were done or even today's code what is done in those circumstances could you clarify your question about no permits if upon the receipt of a 3r report it appears that a kitchen or bathroom remodel was done right it is up to 2007 standards otherwise looks as if it was done professionally and would otherwise meet code but there is no permit to support that when the inspection is done then what we would require that you would get a billing permit and an electrical would probably want to do a survey if it wasn't just a straight cosmetic remodel and there was no electrical no plumbing if electrical and plumbing was that any of the seals were broken of the joints and plumbing fixtures that nature they're gonna they're gonna want to 
open up the walls and take a look. Same with electrical. Even if it looks professional, we don't know what's on the other side of that sheetrock. And uh, the building inspectors that I work with, electrical and plumbing, they're going to have a little problem signing off stuff they don't see. So to legalize it, they're going to want to take a look. Building might want to look. Um, a lot of times you have the back, the back patio of the old place where people used to um, put their vegetables and potatoes and that such. Um, what we see a lot today is that that wall's gone and there's a beam there. Well, we want to see how big the beam is, what's supporting it. Is, it, is the beam big enough? And, and, you know, things of that nature. As far as the 25% owner occupancy requirement, you'll provide a copy of a current preliminary title report. You'll also provide a copy of your most current vesting deed, and that's the deed. It's not an interspousal transfer. It's not a um, trust deed. It's the grant deed. And that's where we get uh, the information as far as the percents of ownership. Okay. Um, if there are four owners, two owning each unit, it is, and it is up to each of those parties to decide their fractional ownership interest. And on the grant deed, it says 50% interest. Then you just. If it's yeah, if it's greater than 25%, then that's great. Yeah, I look for the minimum as long as they meet the minimum requirement, which would be the 25%. Okay. Then yeah, that's fine. Okay. Just kind of a follow-up question. Um, so you come in to take a look at a unit and you note a number of violations and the homeowners decide after that inspection that they don't want to spend the money to do the correction, so they're just going to pass on converting to the condos. Um, I've heard at least a rumor that at that point they're sort of down the path now um, being required to make those. Uh, yeah, because they are violations. So once... My concern would be once somebody once you start the condo process, it's too late to say, ah, I don't think I want to do this now. I don't want to make those repairs. Well, what you're asking is you're asking for a building inspector to enter your premises with your full permission and do a thorough inspection, do our job, and see life safety hazards, or you know, draw, you know, yeah, see life safety hazards. We would have to make note of that and give you a violation. Uh, you have the option of having a contractor that's familiar with the condo process go through prior to us going in there. Uh, there's architects, engineers, um, friends of yours that are tradespeople. You you have all kinds of options before we get in there. But, you know, we there's not an on-off switch once we walk in there, once we see a violation. You know, we're obligated to make a note of it. I just have a question about CCNRs. Um, is there a format that we can follow, or do we can we create our own? Uh, uh? Typically, CCNRs are done with your attorney. And personally, I wouldn't I wouldn't attempt to do CCNRs myself. I don't know enough about the legal issues that come along with that. You might find some template online or some you know something in a bookstore, but. I would think that you'd want an attorney to prepare that for you, someone that's and, done those. And that's part of the process. The application is uh, submit some CCRs, the final CCR. We don't actually have to see the CCNRs. What happens is 
you work your way through the condominium conversion process, your MAP records. Once the MAP records, then our, our authority over the MAP is complete. You still have to record your CCNRs as the final step in creating your condominiums. Okay. Thank you. If a condo permit is um, one in the lottery, what happens to the tenants and what are their rights then? Well, the tenants' rights are spelled out in that Article 9 of the Subdivision Code I talked about earlier. Again, you can find that online, unicode.com. Uh, the tenants need to be notified when you're submitting your application for conversion. If you look online at the residential conversion application, you'll, you'll see the forms that are there, and you'll see the questions that are asked. And one of the things is that have you notified your tenants and provide documentation that you've notified your tenants that you're converting your building to condominium. There's one section of the code, uh, section 1388. It's called tenant intent to purchase, and you do need to offer to your tenants the first right of first refusal for purchasing their unit. And if they sign that form when the map records, then they, then they are entitled to purchase that unit at whatever the price was that was established. Okay. Does that answer? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, question for you. Uh, there's a two-unit TIC. Two families are living in there. They, they'll live there for a year and a day. Does that automatically uh, convert to condo? And then the steps that you just went over, is that what you, you, you use to apply for the condo? Okay. Well, unfortunately, nothing's automatic. Sure. <laughs> it means that once you're there a year and a day, then you can officially submit your application for conversion to Department of Public Works. If you're there for six months, eight months, whatever, you know that you're going to convert your building to condominiums. There's no reason you can't start collecting all of the data in advance of that one year. Okay. There's apps. In fact, you could apply for your physical inspection report uh, before you meet that one-year anniversary. Okay. Is there a time frame, like six months, eight months, before you, you apply for that report or just immediately? I think you can do it as soon as you decide you're going to convert, huh? <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. yeah. And then uh, last question, where do we get this outline, this presentation? Did we get it online somewhere or? There's actually copies back there. There where is. You can get the full. Okay. Thank it'll, you. It'll be online, uh, supposedly in a week. Okay. And Thank it's you. also being filmed. It'll be on uh, SF uh, Gov. Including yourself. That's Channel 26. Yeah. You'll, you'll be on. You'll be on TV. Great. <laughs> can you use the microphone, please? Uh, the the um, requirements for um, eligibility keep changing. I, you know, I, I, um, is it true now that if a building was Ellis Act acted, it can't be converted? Do you, can you speak about that? Is that um, well, in my time with the city, the the requirements for qualifying to participate in the lottery, I don't believe that those particular requirements have changed. It's always been three years owner occupied. You know the required number of units, one unit or three units, depending on the size of your building. Uh, if a building has been Ellis'd, it may be able to be converted. It depend, it's dependent on the kinds of evictions that might have happened. But just, just because it was converted, I mean, just because it was Ellis Act, it doesn't 
mean that it's automatically disqualified as long as no one had protected rights and such? And right. Just because a building has been Ellis does is not that mean that it's prohibited from converting. There are other issues that might prevent it, but it, Ellising is not one of them. Okay. Thanks. Let's say that there's been a uh, vertical and horizontal encroachment by one unit into a uh, common area and putting aside completely any questions of electrical or plumbing or building uh, legitimacy of that, of that encroachment, let's say that there's been an arbitration that's awarded the other unit uh, an equal amount of common space to take over into their unit. At that point, I assume a map, an amended map has to be submitted to you folks. So I'd like you to speak to that just generally. And also, do amended CCNRs have to be submitted as well? Or, you know, what, what happens in that rather unusual situation, roughly? Uh, okay, was this a two unit building? Yes. And you're just changing sort of, you're just talking about changing the shape of the unit, not necessarily adding units to the building. Or no additional units, just uh, some common space that used to be an outside is now an inside in one unit. And the arbitrator said, okay, well, uh, the other folks get, we, we get an equal amount of, com what, of common space that could be added to our unit, provided that, you know, all the proper permits are taken care of first, and then the map is done in accordance with what, what you all need. That's done by amending your CCNRs. That's, it's as simple as that. It's not an amended map because there's a, a very specific definition for an amended map, and that what you're describing doesn't fall into that, that category. As long as you're not adding additional units, you're just going to amend your CCNRs. Okay, yeah, so that would not cover additional square footage to the additional unit. Or, or well, it can be addressed in your CCNRs. Oh, okay. Very good. Thank you. I have four units, um, three of which are small studios, and I'm wondering if two of the studios could be made into one larger apartment, because who would want to buy the smallest closet space in the entire country, uh, which is the size of my second studio? So. I'm wondering if it's possible to make a four-unit into a three-unit condo conversion. That's, um, that's a planning issue, but I can help you out. I can speak on it. Um, what you're asking for is a unit reduction. That is a man mandatory discretionary review. It has to go before the full planning uh, commission. Um, I've watched them on television. I've never done it myself. They it's a, it's a tough sell. I mean, you're going to have to go before a commission of seven people and explain why you need to do it. And if you have a good enough reason and you can convince them, they'll allow you to do it. But it's they, they're trying to protect units. They're trying, we need more housing in San Francisco. And it's, I believe it's their position that um, they, they take, kind of take a dim view of unit mergers. My second question is, I also have a, a multi um, mixed-use building. So is the condo process different when upstairs is a residential and downstairs is commercial? How many residential units? One. One upstairs and one commercial downstairs. That's it. Okay. You can ju you use the residential conversion application. 
you don't have to there are no owner occupancy requirements and the reason for that is article nine applies to buildings that are two to six residential units so it's it's strictly a bypass of article nine it would be an application for a two unit mixed use conversion no owner occupancy um, none of that and is there a time limit to use this once you get your condo permit um, say the market is down now you don't want to sell sometime in the future you might is there some sort of expiration date for these things yeah it's six months are you uh, for the report are you talking about for the report or for the conversion say we convert mm -hmm. and then I own uh, two condos now the residential up and the mixed use down and so I've gone through the whole process and I've done it then um, is there some is that just then the new legal definition or is there some expiration in the case of that two unit building you you're allowed to bypass article 9 so there are no requirements to notify anybody nobody has rights of first refusal to purchase any units it's a different answer with your four unit building all right let's speak to the four units say <laughs> i've converted my four units um, okay. rental uh, three rentals in my home and my owner occupied i go through this whole process and now okay, I'm so Article condo. 9, Section 1388 of Article 9 tells us that we have to notify everybody what we're doing and offer rights of first refusal to the tenants. So in addition to that, while you only needed one unit to be owner-occupied in order to participate in the lottery, once you're ready to submit your application, now you have to have 40% of the units to be represented by an owner and or a tenant that intends to purchase. So in the case of your four-unit building, you live in one unit, you would need one of those occupying tenants to sign this tenant intent to purchase form to meet the 40% before your application could go forward. Units. Any other questions? Seeing none, I um, would like to thank each and every one of you for coming, and I hope this has been uh, of some use, and we hope to see you again. Thank you.